a true hunter beats lions in a hand-to-hand combat with one arm tied behind his back. Hello everyone, Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. And once again, we have some corrections from our kind (laughs) and faithful listeners. And I always appreciate that because we do want to get things right. And then we have some new questions from folks that we're going to answer. So let's get started. This is uh, from Anthony and he says, you just don't get this right. (laughs) He says, for the love of God, Ron, it's a 450 Bushmaster, not a 458 Bushmaster. Now, I answered this already in a previous response and screwed it up again. In trying to get it right, I called the 450 Bushmaster or 458 Bushmaster once again. I think, Anthony, we may be at the point of no return here. I may never get this right, but I will try to remember. And the reason I need to remember is because the 450 Bushmaster cartridge takes a .452 inch diameter bullet. Whereas the 458 SOCOM cartridge takes a 0.458 inch diameter bullet. I'm pretty sure I got it right that time. So that's why we need to differentiate between the 450 Bushmaster and the 458 SOCOM. Never going to go back to those two cartridges again. (laughs) Now, this is from Charles. And he says, Ron, you're not correct on this one about how to pull the trigger. We talked about Betsy uh, hooking it with the inside bend of her finger and pulling the shot a little bit. I had learned to use the first pad of my finger. So I said, that's probably best for coming straight back. The whole idea with trigger pull is not only to not jerk the trigger, but is to apply steady pressure in line with the bore if possible, as much as possible. It takes a little bit of practice and some thought uh, to really develop that skill. But different people have different techniques. I, again, learned with that first pad of the finger and then work on coming straight back rather than the crook of the finger and maybe pulling it to the side. Charles doesn't agree with me. And he's got some good points here, so let's hear him out. After establishing a high handshake-like grip on a pistol grip, then the trigger finger should be allowed to fall upon the trigger wherever it naturally wants to fall. This permits a straight back and leveraged pull that supports smooth trigger control, which will not disturb your aim. Pull an AR-15 trigger in the manner that you suggested, first pad, that would be me, and you will get very poor trigger control due to a disturbed aim. I'm speaking from experience because I shoot in high master class and are a long range competition and as a military rifle instructor assisting the USAMU delivering the squad designated marksman course. Charles sounds like a way more experienced target shooter than I'll ever be. So we are going to pay attention to what he said. Now, I would suggest that this may be effective on the rifles he's using, the pistol grip. I'm coming at it from a sporting rifle with more of a relaxed, open grip. That might make a difference. So again, there's no absolutely correct one way to do any of this stuff. I think a lot of it depends on the shape of your hand, the length of your fingers, the length of the grip on your rifle, the kind of trigger you have, and exactly where it sits in relation to how your hand fits around the grip of your rifle. So work on it. I think that's the important message is to think about 
how you control your trigger. How does it feel best to you? How do you least disturb your rifle and its sight picture when you pull the trigger? Thank you for that, Charles. That was really nice. Now, here's one from Coda. And he's uh, responding to something I did on the 6.8 Western cartridge versus the 7mm PRC, that brand new 7mm from Hornady. Hey, Ron, most of your videos on the 6.8 Western, you keep saying that the largest bullet is 170 grain burger. That's not true. I would love to see you review the Sierra Game King 175 grain which is in the Browning Long Range Hunter 6.8 Western cartridge. That is correct, Coda. That uh, particular load is offered by Browning, and I am familiar with it. I have used it, and I've taken a beautiful whitetail with that uh, at long range. But I don't believe that I keep saying that the largest bullet is the 170 grain. What I hope I'm saying, because this is what I mean, the 170 grain, not burger, but Nosler, um, Acubond, I think it's an Acubond long range, it has the highest BC. So it actually has a flatter trajectory and a little bit less wind deflection than 175 grain load from with that Sierra bullet. That's why I consider it to be kind of the optimal bullet for the 6.8 Western. So I hope I cleared that up for you. This is EV, and they ask, Ron, oh, not ask, tell me, Ron, gravity is not 32 feet per second. It is 32 feet per second squared. You make me cringe every time you say that incorrectly. Well, I'm sorry. I usually try to say it's it pulls at 32 feet per second, accelerating at 32 feet per second, which is the same as saying squared. Um, I, I think it helps people understand it a little better. It's an acceleration thing. It's pulling with a certain energy, and then whatever it pulls accelerates. But I think it's interesting to point out that that is a gravitational pull on Earth, and it changes based on where you are and how high up you are. It doesn't change a lot, but it changes a little bit. But I think the standard is 32.2 feet per second accelerating at that same velocity, 32 feet per second. So... It's uh, not going to fall. A bullet, for instance, turned loose from the barrel is not going to fall exactly 32 feet in the first second because it's accelerating from zero to 32 feet per second. So it comes closer to around 16 feet of fall over the first second of its flight. It gets a little bit confusing. The really interesting thing is something I read recently about scientists having um, observed gravitational waves from a couple of neutron stars colliding or something wild like that way out never never land but they were able to measure the velocity of gravity across the universe this has long been a bone of contention with various scientists they really don't quite understand what gravity is but it seems like it's part of the fabric of space-time we're getting into einsteinian physics here so if you want to correct me boy you're going to have a good opportunity now <laughs> but the the base of it is what what i really came away with was that they measured the speed of gravity from that collision of those neutron stars to here, they measured its velocity at something close to 300 billion meters per second. That's a lot faster than 32 feet per second here on planet Earth. 32 feet per second squared. <laughs> All right. Thanks for bringing up that complicated scientific stuff there. Physics is fun. Now, this is Michael. We're getting back to the 7mm versus the 6.8 Western. 
Ron, if you're going to give the 6.8 Western Ballistics with a 170 grain EOL, that's the um, Extreme Outer Limits bullet from Berger, why the heck, this is in capital letters, so I know he's shouting at me here, why the heck won't you show the 7mm 196 grain EOL bullet? Uh-huh. You're pretty biased, Mr. Spomer. Well, actually, I'm not, Michael. Um, I'm not biased. I just like to try to get what I consider to be one of the better high BC, most effective bullets in each one of those when I make those comparisons. I try to keep things as straight and honest as I can. Honestly, I didn't even know they had a 196 grain EOL bullet in the seven millimeter. I knew they were up to 80, but I never get surprised when Berger comes out with a new super high BC bullet. So that one would be worth entertaining. But, and again, I can't compare every bullet in the world when I'm comparing these cartridges. There's so many different options out there, and they're always coming up with new ones. So I don't mind you guys letting me know about these new ones, but I'm not trying to be biased here when I do my presentations, but do appreciate the help. All right, this is um, Zach. Oh, gosh, we're on another 7-millimeter PRC. This was getting a lot of attention. Hunter Zach um, asks, Ron, when fire forming, you don't want to run a 7-millimeter Weatherby in a 7-millimeter Remington Magnum. No, you probably don't ever want to confuse those two and switch them around. These are awfully close. They're both a belted Magnum cartridge based off of that belted 375 h and H idea as a case, shortened and reconfigured and stuff, but... Uh, they're fairly similar, but this gentleman is saying there are higher pressures in a 7 Weatherby and the gun could explode. It happened to a buddy of mine who thought the two were the same and all he could find was Weatherby ammo, so <laughs> he shot it apparently in his 7 rem mag chamber. He walked away with just some small shrapnel in his face, but it could have been a lot worse. Boy, I'm glad he's all right, but I think we want to examine this a little more closely. I kind of doubt that it was because of higher pressures from the 7 Weatherby cartridge. As I recall, the 7 Weatherby Magnum cartridge has a SAMI spec maximum average chamber pressure of 65,000 PSI, which is kind of the highest for most cartridges. It's the, the one for the 270 Winchester, um, 22250 Remington, 65,000. Um, a lot of the short magnums from recent years are at 65,000. So there's quite a few of them. For some reason, the Remington Magnum was set at 61,000 PSI. But here's the interesting thing. That same basic belted magnum case can be put into a 264 Winchester Magnum. You just neck that 7 millimeter down, shape it a little bit differently to make the 264. Those things are awfully, awfully close. And that one is allowed 64,000 PSI. The 300 Winchester Magnum, same basic case, 64,000 PSI. So I don't think it's the case and that chamber pressure that's making this uh, potential explosion damage of the, of the uh, rifle. Um, and and the, the same basic rifle could be chambered for those other ones and still take that pressure. And the 270s at 65,000, you take a Model 700 Remington, for instance, and chamber for the 270, and it can withstand that pressure. Then you chamber that same rifle for the Weatherby or the, yeah, the Weatherby would, it would be just fine too, as well as the Remington Magnum. So I don't think it's that chamber pressure. Here's what I think was going on. The length of that Weatherby case in 7 millimeter Magnum is a little bit longer in the neck than the uh, Remington Magnum. Uh, 
And I think also a little bit longer in the maximum bullets um, length for the whole maximum cartridge. So the bullet's sitting out farther. So here's what I think probably happened. The neck itself was long enough to get into the throat and get squeezed tightly. So there's more constriction there, and that's going to raise your pressures. And or the bullet could have been jammed into the rifling, and that is going to increase your pressures. So that's probably what's going on with it. It's not strictly the fact that he had the 65,000 PSI Weatherby cartridge in a 61,000 Remington chamber of his rifle. Just something extra to think about. I'm not promising any of that is exactly right, but those are the, the sorts of things we really need to consider. All right, here are some more now. These are on a different page, so these might be questions rather than corrections. No, it's kind of a both here from Amy. Says, when I did a video on the 7mm PR, my goodness, we're getting a lot of 7mm PRC comments here. The 7 PRC for long-range hunting, you discourage long-range hunting or shooting? Or do you just mean you discourage long-range hunting? Okay, so she's asking if I discourage long-range shooting as well as hunting. And I do not. No, I think long-range target shooting is just wonderful sport. And if you enjoy that sort of thing, go for it, man. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy it myself from time to time. And it is it really helps out the industry because it has increased interest so much. you got to understand that these days... It's more difficult to go hunting. There are just fewer places to go. It's uh, harder to get tags and licenses. So if I think if we had to depend on selling rifles just for hunting, we'd be in kind of in trouble here. So uh, the idea that folks are interested in target shooting really helps keep the industry alive. And it helps keep Americans the country of effective riflemen. And we saw many, many years ago, how that worked in 1776. The fact that we were a bunch of skilled hunters and riflemen really made a difference in procuring the United States of America as a democratic republic free from the king. So I think it's important for many, if not all, of us to be proficient with firearms. So no. Now, long-range hunting, I discourage it. I'm not condemning it, absolutely. I have tried it myself, so I'm not a purist here. But knowing what I know about ballistics and time of flight, that is my concern. Wind deflection is the other one. We can never precisely predict what that bullet is doing with wind deflection at longer ranges. The longer that bullet is flying and the further down range is going and the faster the wind is blowing, the more that bullet is driven off target. And it's really difficult to nail all that stuff down. The drops are easy because of the consistent gravitational pull. You can memorize that stuff. But boy, once you get past 500, maybe 600 yards, it really gets iffy. And then your flight time starts getting out there beyond a half a second. You get out to 1,000 yards with a lot of rounds, you're looking at one to one and a half seconds of flight time of that bullet getting to the target. And an animal can move quite a bit in a second or a second and a half. So that's why I discourage long-range hunting, shooting at game. All right, good one. Now, let's go with Tyler. Tyler says, hey, in the chart, it says the 338 RPM has a 225 grain bullet going 3,825 feet per second. I think you must have meant 2825. Boy, I surely did. Yeah, good catch, Tyler. Always watch for this. Whenever I do a a ballistic chart and have all these numbers on there. I'm typing a lot of numbers in, and every once in a while, I hit the wrong one. And when I review it, I will miss it. So um, heads up, folks. 
always be paying attention to that kind of stuff. And by the way, I have seen these kind of typo mistakes even in some reloading recipes in hand-loading manuals over the years. So always think through this stuff. Don't take everything on face value. It has to make sense. That was a good catch, Tyler. This one is from Corey, and he saw this on Ron Spomer Outdoors' YouTube channel. Hey, Ron, I love that video. Um, I don't know which one it is yet. Uh, I'd like to correct you, though. There are three other factory cartridges, which are between the 460 Weatherby Magnum and the 50 BMG. There's the 408 shy Tack. It pushes a 419-grain bullet at 3,000 feet per second and then produces 8,373 foot-pounds of energy. That's a big one. Then there's the 416 Barrett, 393-grain bullet at 3,150 feet per second for 8,767 foot-pounds of energy. And there's the 460 Steyr. I did not know that one. 600-grain bullet at 3,000 feet per second. That's 11,989 foot-pounds of energy. Whew. All three are anti-material rounds like the 50 BMG, which is why I didn't cover them. I was not aware of the 460 Steyr, but I do know the uh, 408 shy Attack and the 375 shy Attack. I believe, in the 416 Barrett. To me, the 416 Barrett was the best for as far as a long-range uh, shooter with minimal wind deflection and all. Um, I'd never heard of that 460 Steyr. There's some big stuff out there. The reason I don't cover those is that last sentence of yours, anti-material rounds. This is a military round, sniper stuff for beyond 1,500-yard targets. I don't think that applies to what I'm mostly interested in, which is hunting. I will cover the target shooting stuff, and maybe someday we'll get into these big things for target shooting at ridiculous ranges. There are a lot of people who enjoy doing that. Um, I have not. I've gone out to a mile, but I never enjoy it because it's, to me, it's just it doesn't feel intimate. It doesn't feel like I'm really connected with the target. It's out there so far and there's atmospheric heat shimmer and waves and you can see the wind blowing for the mirage and all of that stuff. Of course, you have to think about and compensate for with your shooting and your adjustments and all. And it just gets a little bit too nitpicky, a little bit too mathematical and scientific for me. I'm more of a, let's call it a a rifle bow hunter, you know, that personal right there, you you draw your bow and take your shot and you don't have to think that much about all the ballistics of it, even though I talk about ballistics all the time. And that's kind of why I, I just don't get into the extreme range hunting. But boy, those are some big cartridges that can certainly do that job. All right, here are some more. This, uh, These, oh yes, I remember asking for this. Uh, the team put together a bunch of uh, responses to a video that's really been quite popular. It was about someone asked a question about what is a true hunter? How do you define a real hunter? We argue this all the time. You know, it's it's been going on for, gosh, at least 150 years, if not 300 or 500, who knows? You know, but it's always the, what is a true hunter versus who, what is someone who cheats or a poacher or something like that? And it, it kind of came to a head in the late 19th century, uh, early 20th century, when the conservation movement really got started and we sort of coalesced into what we now call the North American model of wildlife conservation, which involves ethical hunting. Because prior to that, it was pretty much a free-for-all, especially in North America and pretty much around the world. And it's why a lot of species 
went extinct or close to it. It was just excessive overuse, overharvest by humans, which could, of course, happen to anything. Trees and insects and domestic animals, anything that you overuse without getting replaced, you could cause its extinction. And that's what was going on with market hunting. Think passenger pigeons, bison, uh, Labrador ducks, dodo birds on islands, anything that was easily accessible and was overused, there it goes. So we started to develop this idea of sustainable use. We needed to control ourselves and minimize our harvest so that we could maintain sustainable populations of all these creatures, which I think is a noble thing and absolutely necessary if we want to continue hunting and having our wildlife. So what had developed then was a sort of an ethical standard, and you'll see a lot of these ethical rules in the various state fish and game management rule books and such. A perfect example no spotlighting deer. You go deer hunting with a spotlight. Are you really hunting? Yeah, you can make an argument. Yes, certainly hunting because if hunting means going out, looking for, pursuing, and trying to get and eventually do get an animal and then eating it, um, you're a hunter, right? But I think we've got higher standards now. So we are going to talk about some of these ideas when people respond to what I said the last time about what is a true hunter. They've got some interesting ideas and they kind of fall into categories. One is I call the primitive argument. And it goes like this. This gentleman writes in, the only real hunter beats the beast to death with his bare hands while wearing a loincloth. (laughs) He then consumes the entire kill raw in the wild. Yeah, that's the primitive. I got a lot of them like that. And it is definitely a philosophy, but I don't think it's quite accurate because what it ignores is what nature has provided to its various predators or how we evolved to have these uh, attributes for being hunters. For instance, a rattlesnake is a hunter. He kills with poison. If a human hunter goes out and poisons some grain and throws it out and gets a deer that way, is he a hunter? Well, if he was a snake, I guess he would be. But I wouldn't consider a human hunter doing that as a hunter. That's one of the ethical rules against poisoning game that we established. Um, Now, a spider will make a web, a trap, and capture his animal. Should we be able to go out and set snares for deer? I don't think most of us would assume that that is a hunter. Um, setting snares and traps for fur-bearing animals or animals that cause damage and it's a way to control them and get rid of them. I think that's legit, but I wouldn't call it hunting. And, you know, that would be snaring or trapping or something. So that's another example of of not being the primitive kind of hunter that nature makes us. You know, we're born naked with no claws and not much for fangs or anything like that. We're not designed like like cats, or wolves even, or bears, or any of these animals. What we are designed for is superior intelligence, plotting, planning, wonderful eyesight for seeing game, and then the ability to stalk close and use a tool to take it. A lion's tools are its claws. A wolf's tools are its legs, its speed, and its group hunting, and its fangs to rip and tear. And wolves don't kill quickly. If you're talking about a humane kill, don't look to a wolf for an example, because unless it's a pretty small animal, they're going to be biting and biting and biting until they can hamstring and bring down that big moose or whatever it is they're after. 
And what humans try to do, and we're the only animal I think that thinks about this or tries to do it, is minimize any fear in the animal and any pain and suffering. We're always trying to make good, clean kills. Separates us from all the rest of the predators. They just want to get the meat. So the primitive idea of going out naked and jumping on an animal and ripping it apart with your bare hands is a little bit silly because the human animal has been a tool maker for a long, long time. And those tools are what we have designed to be more effective and efficient at killing our animals cleanly. Now, the, ne- the next one we get a lot of comments on, I put in the facetious category, kind of making fun of it all. And uh, here's an example. A true hunter beats lions in a hand-to-hand combat with one arm tied behind his back. <laughs> Obviously, he's making a joke here, and we got a lot of those. So, yeah, thanks for that, guys. We appreciate the sense of humor, but, of course, that's not going to qualify as a real hunter in my book. <laughs> well, I guess it would be a really foolish hunter. Now, this is one that we didn't get very many of, but it's a fairly common one in our country and probably in the Western world, and it's the anti-hunting philosophy. And this person said, well, imagine a grown man waxing philosophic through YouTube comments in order to justify bloodlust. Well, man, that is a lot of assumption there, folks. I don't know about you, but I've been a hunter for a long time, and I have never lusted after blood. Um... I want to complete the hunt and be successful at it, but I don't relish the idea of the animal bleeding or even being hurt and suffering. It's just part of the process. This is life on planet Earth. We all need to consume other living things in order to stay alive. No one lives on rocks. (laughs) Every animal is feeding on something that was once alive. And many animals feed on things that still are alive. We don't do that. So that isn't really even worth arguing. Someone who just wants to believe that idea is kind of silly. Now, another category is food only. Hunters who hunt for food only, that's the true hunter. And I get a lot of that. And there's considerable validity in that. I think ultimately, we started hunting for food and we still hunt for food. But because we are such a rational thinking animal and we're creative and artistic and we appreciate beauty, um, all of those things come into play and they're hard. it's hard to articulate it in hunting. But if you really spend some time and think about it, we're not just hunting for food. Someone who says it's the only reason they hunt, I think they're being disingenuous and or not honest with their own feelings because deep inside, whenever I've been really, really hungry, I knew I could run to the store and get something to eat. I didn't have anything like the feeling that I get looking forward to a hunting trip. The the, the whole program, the magic of being out there in and amongst nature and discovering her mysteries and and the beauty, the sense and the sounds and the smells and the challenges and discovering new country. And there's just so much more involved in it than just getting food. So the hunters who tell me that they only hunt for food, I just don't think that's quite honest. You really need to think. Now, maybe there are some people like that. I don't know what's in the hearts and minds of everyone, but I've just seen too many people out hunting who seem to enjoy a lot more of the whole experience than just getting food. But here's some of the comments we get. A real hunter provides food for his family. Well, yeah, it does, but then a real shopper can do the same thing. A real farmer provides food for his family. It doesn't mean he's a hunter. 
Um, here's another one. A real hunter is a person that is willing to do whatever it takes to provide for their loved ones. Well, no, because a poacher might be providing for his loved ones. And in this day and age, with this philosophy we've developed over ethical hunting, I don't think we can call poachers true hunters. Certainly they're out hunting animals if they're not just shooting them out of an airplane or spotlighting them at night. But there are degrees in this whole program. The degree to which you are an ethical hunter, I think, plays a role in some of this. Uh, you may differ with me on exactly where the line is. It's a gray area, that's for sure. But I don't think just because someone is willing to do anything to put food on the table makes them a true hunter. They might be an effective hunter. <laughs> Here is a result-oriented only philosophy. When you target an animal and you get it, you're a hunter. And again, we get to the how did you get that animal? I mean, again, get in a helicopter, fly over a herd of elk and shoot one. Does that make you a real hunter? You targeted him and you got him, but are you a hunter or are you just a mechanized shooter? And you can take that in all sorts of other realms, but you get the idea. Now here, I think, are where we're getting to the heart of this. I call these the thoughtful and or ethical hunters who are really thinking through this and trying to make sense of it in an honest way. Example, this gentleman says, wouldn't a real hunter focus more on his knowledge of his prey and the skills he has, like tracking, rather than the weapon that he uses? Perhaps it's in the word, the word choice. Some pretty, some prey require different weapons. Traps are also an overlooked method of hunting. I don't care how you kill it so long as you got the skill and you didn't absolutely ruin the pelts. In my book, that makes you a real hunter. So this gentleman is including trapping as hunting. I didn't, but that's okay. That's his philosophy. But he's thinking about skills and knowing your prey. I like that. This one person says the true hunter thinks about ethical kills and the preservation of the species. And again, now we're getting to the heart of this whole conservation movement and what changed market hunters and poachers to what we now consider sport hunters. And that term gets beat up and battered around a lot because a lot of people think it means that we're making a sport of the animal and harassing it and killing it just for frivolous pursuit and sport. That's not what it means. Sport hunting means we have rules and regulations and ethical constraints, closed seasons, limited harvests, all of those regulations that reflect more of a sporting attitude uh, with rules and regulations and boundaries in which we perform. Here someone says, it's all hunting and I respect our community as long as it's legal and ethical and you use and respect your game. Good luck to everybody and be safe. So, And there's one more. This gentleman says, uh, being a real true hunter, to me, it means using whatever I think I can use to take game within my skills training and equipment and abilities. That's all done within a distance from which I'm rather confident I can make a sure kill shot. Yeah. Now that's pretty much summing it up. We need to consider what our skill level is, whether we're saying, you know, a 300 yard shot is too far. You're not a true hunter if you shoot at 300 yards or 600 or whatever it is. Um, if you have the skills, the tools, the ability to make a sure shot, a killing shot at whatever distance, and you've hunted that animal fairly, you haven't taken some unfair advantage, I think you can call it hunting. Um, it gets a little bit gray when you start extending the range to beyond what the animal would recognize as 
Well, as you even being there, I mean, the question often comes up, if the animal doesn't know it's being pursued, does that make it unethical for the hunter when the animal's out there has no idea it's being hunted? I, I, I understand where that comes from. But then again, there's archers up in trees, bow hunters in trees who are, they don't want the animal to know they're there. They're extremely quiet. They want the scent to be up. And most hunters work the wind so the animal doesn't scent them. They're quiet so the animal doesn't hear them. And if they can shoot an animal completely unaware, it has no idea that they're around, that's considered to be sort of the acme of the success. So I don't know exactly where you draw the line on that one. That's worthy of more discussion. And finally, here's a nice one from a gentleman that says, a true hunter enjoys the camaraderie of the camp with friends and strangers. He makes everyone feel like their time in camp is of equal importance. He encourages those less skillful. He makes the most of the harvest, shares his bounty once he gets at home. And uh, he said, like uh, Uncle Ted Nugent said, say a prayer for all the wild things. Well, that's nice. Oh, well, here's one last one. A real hunter does the right thing when no one is looking. That pretty much sums up ethics. And I think most of us know what that is in our hearts when we're out there. So when no one's looking, I like that. So those are the questions, the answers, the corrections, and the philosophical meanderings of Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast this week, folks. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Um, I want to remind you, you can check out RSO store. Uh, until next time, do hunt honest and shoot straight. Mm-hmm.